0: Book four The Church of the Slavers, part four of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clerical Camouflage I have seen a photograph from Somewhere in France showing a wayside shrine with a statue of the Virgin Mary innocent and loving, with her babe in her arms. If you were a hostile aviator, you might sail over and take pictures to your heart's content, and you would see nothing but a saintly image. You would have to be on the enemy's side and behind the lines to make the discovery that under the image had been dug a hole for a machine-gun. When I saw that picture, I thought to myself, there is capitalist religion you see if cannon and machine guns are out in the open they are almost instantly spotted and put out of action and so with magazines like leslie's weekly or muncie's or the north american review which are frankly and wholly in the interest of big business if an editor wishes really to be effective in holding back progress He must protect himself with a camouflage of piety and philanthropy. He must have at his tongue's end the phrases of brotherhood and justice. He must be liberal and progressive, going a certain cautious distance with the reformers, indulging in carefully measured fair play, giving a dime with one hand while taking back a dollar with the other. Let us have an illustration of this clerical camouflage. Here are the wives and children of the Colorado coal miners being shot and burned in their beds by Rockefeller gunmen, and the press of the entire country in a conspiracy of silence concerning the matter. In the effort to break down this conspiracy, Bauke White, Congregational Clergyman, author of the call of the carpenter, goes to the Fifth Avenue Church of Standard Oil, and makes a protest in the name of Jesus. I do not wish to make extreme statements, but I have read history pretty thoroughly, and I really do not know where in nineteen hundred years you can find an action more completely in the spirit and manner of Jesus than that of Balk White. The only difference was that, whereas Jesus took a real whip and lashed the money-changers, White politely asked the pastor to discuss with him the question whether or not Jesus condemned the holding of wealth. He even took the precaution to write a letter to the clergyman announcing in advance what he intended to do. And how did the clergyman prepare for him? with the sword of truth and the armor of the Spirit? No, but with two or three dozen strong-arm men who flung themselves upon the socialist author and hurled him out of the church. So violent were they that several of White's friends, also one or two casual spectators, were moved to protest. What happened then? Let us read in the New York Sun. THE MOST BITTERLY HOSTILE TO RADICALISM OF ALL THE METROPOLITAN NEWSPAPERS, SAYS THE Sun's REPORT. A POLICE BILLY CAME CRUNCHING AGAINST THE BONES OF LOPEZ'S LEGS. IT STRUCK HIM AS HARD AS A MAN COULD SWING IT EIGHT TIMES. A FIST PLANTED ON LOPEZ'S JAW KNOCKED OUT TWO TEETH. HIS LIP WAS TORN OPEN. A blow in the eye made it swell and blacken instantly. A minute later, Lopez was leaning against the church with blood running to the door-sill. And now, what has the clerical camouflage to say on this proceeding? Does it approve it? Oh, no. It was a mistake, the outlook protests. IT INTENSIFIES THE HATRED WHICH THESE EXTREMISTS FEEL FOR THE CHURCH. THE PROPER COURSE WOULD HAVE BEEN TO TURN THE DISTURBER ASIDE WITH A SOFT ANSWER, TO GIVE HIM SOME PLACE, SAY, IN A PARK, WHERE HE COULD TALK HIS HEAD OFF TO PEOPLE OF HIS OWN SORT, WHILE GOOD AND DECENT CHRISTIANS CONTINUED TO WORSHIP BY THEMSELVES IN PEACE, AND TO HAVE THE CHILDREN OF THEIR MIND-SLAVES SHOT AND BURNED IN THEIR BEDS says our pious editor the true way to repress cranks is not to suppress them it is to give them an opportunity to air their theories before any who wish to learn while forbidding them to compel those to listen who do not wish to do so or take another case twelve years ago the writer made an effort to interest the american people in the conditions of labor in their packing plants. It happened that, incidentally, I gave some facts about the bedevilment of the public's meat supply, and the public really did care about that. As I phrased it at the time, I aimed at the public's heart, and by accident I hit it in the stomach. There was a terrible clamor, and Congress was forced to pass a bill to remedy the evils. As a matter of fact, this bill was a farce, but the public was satisfied, and soon forgot the matter entirely. The point to be noted here is that, so far as concerned the atrocious miseries of the working people, it was not necessary even to pretend to do anything. The slaves of Packingtown went on living and working as they were described as doing in The Jungle and nobody gave a further thought to them. Only the other day I read in my paper, while we are all making sacrifices in a war for democracy, that Armour and Company had paid a dividend of 21%, and Swift and Company a dividend of 35%. This prosperity they owe in good part to their clerical camouflage listen to our pious outlook engaged in countermining the jungle. The outlook has no doubt that there are genuine evils in the packing plants. The conditions of the workers ought, of course, to be improved. But to disgust the reader by dragging him through every conceivable horror, physical and moral, TO DEPICT WITH LURID EXCITEMENT AND WITH OFFENSIVE MINUTENESS THE LIFE IN JAIL AND BROTHEL, ALL THIS IS TO OVERREACH THE OBJECT. EVEN THINGS ACTUALLY TERRIBLE MAY BECOME DISTORTED WHEN A WRITER SCREAMS THEM OUT IN A SENSATIONAL WAY AND IN A HIGH-PITCHED KEY, MORE CONVINCING IF IT WERE LESS HYSTERICAL. DON'T YOU SEE WHAT THESE CLERICAL CROOKS ARE FOR? THE JUNGLE A four-years' war was fought in America. A million men were killed and half a continent was devastated in order to abolish chattel slavery and put wage slavery in its place. I have made a thorough study of both these industrial systems, and I freely admit that there is one respect in which the lot of the wage-slave is better than that of the chattel-slave. The wage-slave is free to think, and by squeezing a few drops of blood from his starving body he may possess himself of machinery for the distribution of his ideas. Taking his chances of the policeman's club and the jail, he may found revolutionary organizations, and so he has the candle of hope to light him to his deathbed, But accepting this consideration, and taking the circumstances of the wage-slave from the material point of view alone, I hold it beyond question that the average lot of the chattel-slave of 1860 was preferable to that of the modern slave of the beef-trust, the steel-trust, or the coal-trust. It was the southern master's real concern, his business interest, that the chattel slaves should be kept physically sound. But it is nobody's business to care anything about the wage slave. The children of the chattel slave were valuable property, and so they got plenty to eat, and a happy outdoor life, and medical attention if they fell ill. BUT THE CHILDREN OF THE SWEATSHOP OR THE COTTON-MILL OR THE CANNING FACTORY ARE RAISED IN A CITY SLUM, AND NEVER KNOW WHAT IT IS TO HAVE ENOUGH TO EAT, NEVER KNOW A FEELING OF SECURITY OR REST. WE ARE WEARY IN OUR CRADLES FROM OUR MOTHER'S TOIL UNTOLD. WE ARE BORN TO HOARDED WEARINESS AS SOME TO HOARDED GOLD. THE SYSTEM OF COMPETITIVE COMMERCIALISM, OF LARGE-SCALE CAPITALIST INDUSTRY IN ITS FINAL FLOWERING. I QUOTE FROM THE JUNGLE. HERE IN THIS CITY TONIGHT, TEN THOUSAND WOMEN ARE SHUT UP IN FOUL PENS AND DRIVEN BY HUNGER TO SELL THEIR BODIES TO LIVE. TONIGHT IN CHICAGO THERE ARE TEN THOUSAND MEN, HOMELESS AND WRETCHED, willing to work and begging for a chance, yet starving, and fronting with terror the awful winter cold. Tonight in Chicago there are a hundred thousand children, wearing out their strength and blasting their lives in the effort to earn their bread. There are a hundred thousand mothers who are living in misery and squalor, struggling to earn enough to feed their little ones. THERE ARE A HUNDRED THOUSAND OLD PEOPLE, CAST OFF AND HELPLESS, WAITING FOR DEATH TO TAKE THEM FROM THEIR TORMENTS. THERE ARE A MILLION PEOPLE, MEN AND WOMEN AND CHILDREN, WHO SHARE THE CURSE OF THE WAGE-SLAVE, WHO TOIL EVERY HOUR THEY CAN STAND AND SEE, FOR JUST ENOUGH TO KEEP THEM ALIVE, WHO ARE CONDEMNED, TILL THE END OF THEIR DAYS, TO MONOTONY AND WEARINESS, TO HUNGER AND MISERY, TO HEAT AND COLD, TO DIRT AND DISEASE, TO IGNORANCE AND DRUNKENNESS AND VICE, AND THEN TURN OVER THE PAGE WITH ME, AND GAZE UPON THE OTHER SIDE OF THE PICTURE. THERE ARE A THOUSAND, TEN THOUSAND MAYBE, WHO ARE THE MASTERS OF THESE SLAVES, WHO OWN THEIR TOIL. THEY DO NOTHING TO EARN WHAT THEY RECEIVE. They do not even have to ask for it. It comes to them of itself. Their only care is to dispose of it. They live in palaces. They riot in luxury and extravagance, such as no words can describe, as makes the imagination real and stagger, makes the soul grow sick and faint. They spend hundreds of dollars for a pair of shoes, a handkerchief, a garter, They spend millions for horses and automobiles and yachts, for palaces and banquets, for little shiny stones with which to deck their bodies. Their life is a contest among themselves for supremacy in ostentation and recklessness, in the destroying of useful and necessary things, in the wasting of the labor and the lives of their fellow-creatures, the toil and anguish of the nations, the sweat and tears and blood of the human race. It is all theirs, it comes to them, just as all the springs pour into streamlets, and the streamlets into rivers and the rivers into the ocean, so, automatically and inevitably, all the wealth of society comes to them. The farmer tills the soil, the miner digs in the earth, THE WEAVER TENDS THE LOOM, THE MASON CARVES THE STONE, THE CLEVER MAN INVENTS, THE shrewd MAN DIRECTS, THE WISE MAN STUDIES, THE INSPIRED MAN SINGS, AND ALL THE RESULTS, THE PRODUCTS OF THE LABOR OF BRAIN AND MUSCLE, ARE GATHERED INTO ONE STUPENDOUS STREAM AND POURED INTO THEIR LAPS. THIS IS THE SYSTEM it is the crown and culmination of all the wrongs of the ages, and in proportion to the magnitude of its exploitation is the hypocrisy and knavery of the clerical camouflage which has been organized in its behalf. Beyond all question, the supreme irony of history is the use which has been made of Jesus of Nazareth as the head god of this bloodthirsty system. It is a cruelty beyond all language, a blasphemy beyond the power of art to express. Read the man's words, furious as those of any modern agitator that I have heard in twenty years of revolutionary experience. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Sell that ye have and give alms. Blessed are ye poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Woe unto you also, you lawyers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And this man... I quote from the jungle again, They have made into the high priest of property and smug respectability a divine sanction of all the horrors and abominations of modern commercial civilization. Jeweled images are made of him, sensual priests burn incense to him, and modern pirates of industry bring their dollars wrung from the toil of helpless women and children, and build temples to him, and sit in cushioned seats and listen to his teachings expounded by doctors of dusty divinity. End of book four. Part four. End of book four.